Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 31 of the Rugby Strength Coach podcast. This is Keir from Rugby Strength Coach. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. So I'm here in Tokyo and at the moment I've got a couple of visitors, friends of mine from the strength and conditioning world, uh, namely Ryan Hicks and Aidan Oakley. They're staying with me, so in order for them to earn their rent money, I decided to put on this roundtable podcast. Some of you may have heard of Ryan and Aidan before. For those of you that haven't, Ryan Hicks is a colleague of mine from London Wasps. We worked together for a number of years. He's an extremely smart coach. He's worked at Harlequins Rugby League. He worked for nearly six years at London Wasps, and he's also been involved in the England under-20 side, which recently won the Youth World Cup. Aidan is a strength and conditioning coach who currently works at Aspire Academy in Doha, Qatar. He's also worked for Harlequins uh, Rugby League and also when it changed to London Broncos Rugby League. And he's also worked at the Scottish Institute of Sport in addition to Al Arabi Football again in Qatar. In this episode, it was a a pretty free-flowing discussion. Uh, We touched on a few topics that we talked about throughout the week in our discussions and a lot of other topics just popped up and we decided to discuss them during the roundtable. We talk about effective training, both for Aidan's current specialist sport of table tennis and also special strength training and how it relates to um, training sprint qualities. We also discuss the value of relationships in strength and conditioning, both in your ability to function as a coach and also to build your own career. We talked about youth S&C, what's wrong with it, how do we fix it? And we also talked about team structure and how the role of the performance director fits into the, the wider work of the team. Now be warned, this episode is a little more casual and a little bit more explicit than normal. Unfortunately, that's just how we talk in a group, so if you're easily offended, I'm, I'm guessing you're not because you probably shouldn't be following this podcast already, but if you are, watch out for that. And if you like this kind of content and discussion, remember that there's hours and hours and hours of video presentations, discussions, and resources available inside the Rugby Strength Coach community. This is an exclusive members community just for strength coaches where you get to learn from elite level strength and conditioning coaches who are working in the trenches and they're going to be sharing their ideas with you on topics that really matter not just what you have to learn for accreditations and degrees. Besides those monthly webinar presentations we also have a discussion area where you can talk to coaches from all over the world in all different sports about topics that are important to you to get the information that you want and to share and receive resources. Lastly, we have our career advice section where you can ask coaches who have been there and done it before you how best to build your own career and get to where you want to be as a coach. If you would like to try the members area, make sure you go to rugbystrengthcoach.com forward slash members and you can try the community for 24 hours for just one pound. If you like it, you can keep it and switch on to a regular membership and if you don't, you can cancel it. Just get in touch with me. There's no strings attached. So enjoy this episode and I'll speak to you soon. All right, boys. How's it going? First ever round table. Do you want to introduce yourselves? Aiden. I'm Aiden Oakley, currently a strength and conditioning coach at the Spire Academy in Qatar um, and working with the table tennis team. Previous bio? Um, previously, I've interned in the States at Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning. Um, I've been head of academy and assistant SNC at London Broncos, uh, strength and conditioning coach at the Scottish Institute of Sport and performance specialist for Exos out in Qatar with Al Arabi FC. Big fucking deal. <laughs> um, Ryan. It's a big deal. Uh, I'm Ryan Hicks. Uh, I've just come off the back of a good stint with London Wasp Academy. Uh, off a big K over here. So I've spent, I think, what, six years there in total? Yeah. A couple of years. Did you arrive before me? Just. We arrived at the same just, time. Just, yeah. No, you, you, I started... 
July 2010. End of July. I was in June. So oh, really? Yeah. Oh, see, I thought you were no, there before. Actually, January. 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 Oh. Anyway, yeah, so hang around there like a bad smell for, for a good time. Um, prior to that, I was with London Brokers a bit. With, yeah, uh, back in the day. Big A. Funny. Was that when it was Harlequin Rugby League? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then... Uh, it's PT, I uh, spent a lot of time working with uh, neurological injuries, a uh, special physio clinic. Um, yeah, just general PT and sports coaching. Really. And you hold the current world record for longest time taken to complete a master's degree? Well, it's still going, so... <laughs> so yeah, the record grows by the day. Yeah, I'm quite proud of that. That's at Merit. Do you guys, do you do master's at Merit's Aiden? Middlesex. Middlesex. And you did your undergrad at Birmingham? Birmingham Uni, yeah. All right. I'm not an academic. Me neither. <laughs> right, let's get into it. So you work with table tennis in uh, in Doha. How do you approach a sport like that? Because my my impression is that there's there's no huge forces to overcome besides body weight and you know the mass of a ping pong ball. How do you approach it uh, in terms of the the force production qualities? That is a very good question. Um, you know, a ball weighs six grams. So that's kind of what you're having to overcome. Um, but in terms of forces, like if you watch the game, it's a lot of lateral movement. It's a lot of jumping from side to side. So they're having to break, reduce force, stabilize, and then produce force back in the other direction. Um, if you've ever watched a table tennis game, you see them move side to side. It's a lot harder. Frontal plane. Um, or just trying to react to the ball, you know. Um, like I've played against some of my 12-year-old kids, and I've yet to win a game. Like They are that much better than me. Mm. Um, so there's a massive technical tactical component to that yeah um, and if you can move your opponent around the table then yeah there are quite a lot of forces um, that these guys are going to get exposed to not so much in terms of competition but you know a match could last from I've seen from 15 minutes up to over an hour um, depending on how tight the game is yeah. so that's not too demanding to sort of have to overcome but our boys will train you know, some days up to four hours a day, so it's more enhancing their physical capabilities to endure training. Mm. And then when they come to competition time, it's easier. Like our boys might play three games in a day. Oh, okay. So you would have multiple games in a day. Yeah, and they will start from as early as like ten a.m. Um, all the way through to about nine p.m. at night. So you get mm. adequate breaks sort of between that. Um, but training is for our boys. It's school for a few hours, training for two hours lunch, more school, more training for two hours. Mm. Um, and obviously these guys are getting up to pray early doors, so it's a long old day for them. Um, there, So it's literally just a war of attrition, you know. Survived. <laughs> Not, nothing compared to the Chinese who are training eight hours a day, but there's still yeah. a massive cost that these guys yeah, yeah. Um, are exposed to. So, you know, with... It sounds like, you know, the biggest body mass they have to... Sorry, the biggest forces they have to produce is to overcome their own body mass and deceleration, acceleration, change direction. Do you see a clear correlation between, you know, elite performers and sub-elite performers of, you know, your best guys, your strongest guys? Or is that just something that you're trying to add to, to what they already do? Yeah. So, I mean, for us, it's difficult because at Aspire Academy, we are a school. Um, so our table tennis program is made from boys that are 12 years old all the way up to 18. Mm. Um, and for each year, I've either got one or two athletes per age group so it's hard to make comparisons that way so that is a real small group so, yeah real small group I have about 10 athletes um, with the majority of them play for the Qatar Table Tennis Federation as well mm. um, and represent Qatar there so it's harder to make direct comparisons between age related athletes but 
as you watch the athletes progress through the system, yeah. as you'd expect, the older athletes move better, they're stronger, but then you see that on court. Um, you know, our older boys get lower to the table, they move a lot faster, they're a lot more explosive compared to the younger guys who don't have the strength, so they take longer to break and move back. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, you're asking what the sort of how does SC impact table tennis? That's one of the biggest factors our coach will say to me is, you know, this boy has problems with change of direction with his agility because he doesn't have the strength um, or the coordination to move himself around the table. So it will take him twice as long to move from one side to the other to then play a shot. Whereas, you know, you watch our older boys' kids or our older boys move and it's quickly like quick feet just across the floor constantly on the move. Um, and it, it's impressive to watch, but again, these are the stronger, more coordinated athletes. So mm. um, that's the way I kind of approach it. It's not like you know you need a two times body weight squat to play table tennis. <laughs> it's have you got the appropriate strength to move around the court? And yeah. without testing in the gym, you can see good moves to bad moves like anything. Um, how how do you test it kind of at the table? Are there any like KPIs for your sport that you're looking at? Say. You know, if we can make this go up, the chances are we've made a better table tennis player. Yep, so one of the uh, biomechanists, um, Dr. Jonathan Glynn, that we work with, um, has created his own table tennis agility test. Um, And it's basically, there's three balls on the table, one on each corner and one in the middle. Um, And there's a a set pathway the boys have to move and make contact with each ball um, in an appropriate pattern that's relative to the sport. And he times that and looks at the reaction between the splits. Um, so it's something we've only really rolled out to the older boys at the minute, mm. um, just because it is quite a technical sort of movement for them. And the younger boys don't have the pattern in to perform it properly at the minute, so it's not a valid test for them. But yeah. for the older boys, it's, it's definitely reliable. Um, and again, as they get older, you can sort of see that they're quicker, they've got quicker splits. Mm. Um, so I think, sort of going forward, I think that'll be something we'll look into a bit more. and how strength relates to the score, how that relates to performance on court. What's the, the energy system profile like? What kind of heart rates will they get up to in a, in a game? Um, so again, the older boys, you know, they can get to some sort of sustained heart rates, um, pushing, you know, 85, 90% max heart rate during training when we play matches. Uh, the boys can't wear heart rates during proper matches. Is that the rules? So, yeah, so we can't tell you absolutely, but in training when they spar against um, higher quality partners, like, they have had a workout um, and it's such sustained periods of you know output um, what's what's the work rest distribution in a game is what how long is like a typical play so it could be as short as four shots it could be you know it is quick so again you want to talk energy systems it's a lactic aerobic yeah you know it's explosive movements but then they'll walk back they'll set the serve you know every serve is you know almost technical mastery they'll take their time they'll compose themselves um, again, if you've ever been on the receiving end of one of their serves, the spin on that, they, they just score you with how technical they are. It looks easy as a bystander, but as soon as you grab the racket <laughs> yeah. and you go against them, it's like, okay, like I have a, you know, a great appreciation for what you boys are going through. Yeah. So um, it's imagine a conversion in rugby. Yeah. You know, you take the time, you compose yourself, and you go, and if you get conversion straight away after that, you yeah. do exactly the same thing. You don't rush it just because you've just taken one. Yeah. You have your rituals you go through and the boys are exactly the same. So it's explosive, rest, explosive, rest. Um, you know, if a decent serve, it could be over like that and then you set again and go again. Was it, what's that put by, is it Matthew Side? Oh, I forget the name of it. It was a rip-off of um, 
outliers by Mark, Malcolm Gladwell. Bounce, that's yeah, it, yeah. yeah. And they said like you've got actually got less time to respond to a table tennis serve than a, a tennis serve. Yeah, because the table's shorter, the revolutions on the ball is crazy. Yeah. Um, so trying to learn table tennis from the coaches, um, they'll serve to you and you'll just go for a, a bog standard shot if you've never played table tennis. And because you can't read the spin on the ball, mm. you know, this coach has gone to me, I'm going to serve this way. Um, and it's going to go to the left. You're like, no, no, you know, I'm, I'm just going to hit straight back. It, it's going to go that. And you don't really appreciate the spin he puts on the ball. So you return the ball, it shoots off left. <laughs> You're like, okay, fair play. He goes, I'm going to do exactly the same. It's going to go right. So you correct a little bit, think, okay, I've kind of got this in the bag. Yeah. Shoots off to the right. Just for fun, he goes, this one you're going to put in the net. I'm like, there's no way you can guarantee that. Yeah. Straight into the net. <laughs> and that's part of why the boys do so much repetition. Because although it, to, the, to, to us that don't have the table tennis eye, um, you might go, oh, that's exactly the same shot. But the spin they put on it, you know, dictates that you have to use a different shot or a different spin variation to, to and counter And presumably that. perceive the spin on yeah. the ball. Yeah, so he's talking to the boys about, you know, watching... You know the slice they're coming up with the ball, how they're approaching it. So mm. you're having it's the same as what we talk about with cricketers. Yeah. You know they're already moving before the balls bounce and come at them. They're already having to perceive where that ball is going to be based on the run up, based on the release. Exactly the same thing on table tennis. You've just got a short period of time to. Do you, do you ever ha- ever have any impact on that kind of visual scanning and anticipation, or you just leave that to sport coaches and try and train train the stuff that underpins everything else? Yeah. So I think sort of where we're at with the program. Um, I think globally, not many people work in table tennis as an S&C coach. Yeah. Um, we recently had... You're the, the Davy Crockett of table hey, tennis strength and conditioning. Tr- trying to lead the way. But, um, <laughs> the only problem with that is you've got no real guidance to sort of follow someone else's path. So, yeah. you know, I'm lucky that I worked... Uh, well, I worked with um, one of the coaches, Paddy Mills, who used to be at Bath Rugby. Mm. And he worked on the table tennis program um, before me. And he's kind of laid a decent training foundation for the boys for me to sort of follow on with. But then you're still trying to answer questions of what do these table tennis athletes need um, how to approach it so for me yeah I've, I've literally gone I'm going to attack everything that underpins the physical qualities yeah. and work with the coach to understand where I can have impacts on sort of bigger movement patterns but in terms of so you're still at the stage of it's the big rocks you just yeah, need to yeah for sure you know until we nail those big rocks and I think it'll take a while yeah um, leave the coaching and the, the scanning to the coaches and I think for me as well it's trying to have a better understanding of the sport yeah. and learn from the coach to understand almost how I can have a bigger impact, how I can affect it yeah. from a gym perspective, but equally in the warm-ups, um, you know, if we can start incorporating drills um, with the athletes to sort of tick both boxes in terms of technical and physical. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a slow process and we're slowly getting there and day by day I think we're improving. That's, that's what I struggle with. Like I want to come in and I'll have 10 things in my head that I want to do but then you have to do nine things first to get to the 10th bit yeah. and you, you get ahead of yourself and you think, actually, like, if we can't, if we, for example, deadlifting, we, we took a month, no, two months to get them deadlifting heavy. We did one month where they put a band around the hips they had to extend against the band for a month just because the technique wasn't there and then we just built up the weight slowly and slowly and now we're getting to some decent deadlift weights, but... but that, and that's in a profession where gym condition is standard and you're, you're paving away in a short yeah. It's, it's it's a completely new novel thing. So yeah. you're and upcoming. I guess you add to that, you're working with adults, you know, guys that have been training yeah. and have hope like in a in a culture that should have decent movement patterns, you know. You'd think so. You'd, you'd hope so. You'd be, the thing is like <laughs> I would rather I would rather train a kid 
with sloppy movement than an adult, just because with a kid, you, they've got less hours under their belt, they've developed less bad habits, and also, you know, a lot of the time, I've, I've yet to see a, a non-contact ACL in like a 10-year-old kid. They just don't have the force and the speed to hurt themselves properly it's like learning to drive in a Ford Fiesta versus a Ferrari like fuck give me the give me the Ford Fiesta right. yeah <laughs> we're having this conversation about Ford Fiestas today yeah. you know you don't it's want one car. they're reliable but <laughs> no, no, you're no. not going anywhere quickly <laughs> now on the subject of Ford Fiestas and engine and all that stuff you guys came to watch uh, us train yesterday and we did a top end speed session then some, some gym stuff and the topic that came up was specialised strength development so we're in a phase where We've done some generalized power stuff, um, both in terms of our, we call it SST and ballistic stuff. So with our SST, it's it's jumps, plyometrics, med ball throws, generally where it's a higher movement speed, a bit more muscular stretch, a bit more activation of the stretch shortening cycle. And then we have more kind of contractile ballistic power stuff like jump squats, bench throws and so on. And we're in a phase at the moment where we're trying to give them a couple of special exercises per session that correspond to their primary movement patterns on the field of play. And then you said, you know, in, in recent times at London Wasps, you're actually programming your power stuff, your specialized strength development in terms of the speed qualities that you train uh, that day in the program. So, I mean, is that an approach that you came to yourself or is that one that you've stolen from, from someone? No, no, not really. It, just, it, it mainly came from the, the momentum perspective to start with, thinking I'm, I'm keeping speeding because speed is vital. Do I need to do a special strength uh, element in addition yeah um, and in some cases in some phases I don't think it is you know, your speed is your special strength essentially in yeah. certain phases you program it um, then it comes to the fact that you know okay in this phase I, I feel we need a special strength to, yeah. to uh, emphasise a different element but then from a monitoring perspective is my special strength going to then take away from my speed session from a, from a known perspective and from a low perspective. Yeah. Um, so you're just hammering them again and again with the same kind of thing. Exactly. And you know, you know, then you're looking at you know 120 kilo props, how many foot contacts have they got, etc. Et yeah. However you want to want to monitor the load um, placed upon them. So it just seems to me, um, yeah, I'm not a neuroscientist by any stretch of the imagination, but if I'm doing a multi-directional speed session, it wouldn't it make sense to do multi-directional special strength exercise to complement that in the gym yeah. if that's what I've deemed is necessary for that individual in that phase um, and is it fair to say that because obviously my perspective from, from the way that we do it is with inverted commas elite athlete the generalised training is, has come and gone well, the, the, the emphasis on general training has come and gone and they're at the stage of their career where basically they're being paid to do a couple of things really, really well and do the other stuff kind of more general. Yeah. So, you know, the question I have in my head is if they are training specialised strength development or they're reinforcing um, the the technical and physical qualities training speed, are they training the stuff that they get paid to specialise in? But then the, the thought that came into my head is, well, actually, with a youth athlete, it doesn't matter. No. You're, you're not training for specialisation. You're training to make them ready to, to be a premiership player training in a premiership yeah. environment and for those guys especially special strength is a squat yeah essentially yeah <laughs> because they're, they're, they're still going to respond to that stimulus exactly. right exactly and that's that's as that's as specialized i need to get a, a 16 to 18 year old potentially yeah. you know we're getting better now and maybe that will come in sooner or sooner but um essentially yeah that is special strength yeah for, for younger now on the subject of youth snc we all three of us have trained in youth snc at 
at some point, some of us longer than others. You know, I, I didn't do it for a huge amount of time. But what, what are your guys' perception of what gets done badly in youth strength and conditioning and youth professional sport in general? And, and how do we fix it? Not necessarily us, you know, <laughs> us as a field. <laughs> well, I'll attack it from uh, my perspective in Qatar. Um, and, you know, one of the biggest problems we come across is just working on fundamental movement patterns with the athletes. Um, you know, part of the problem is in in Qatar for particular reasons, yeah, the weather, you know, you're not going to go outside and play and experience different sports when it's 50 odd degrees. Um, you know, that that is just a fact of life there. These, these boys don't get exposed to the free play that we'd have had back in like the UK growing up. Um, and I think it sort of more extends now to what you call technology generation or the guys that live on iPads and Playstations and you know where we'd be bored on the weekend or bored over summer and you know playing sport was a form of entertainment and a way of passing the time jumpers for goalposts mate exactly you know? <laughs> you've got that little sponge ball that's missing chunks out of it and yeah yeah i don't think the, the kids are exposed to that as much nowadays as we were is that do you think in your setting in qatar is that a social construct or is that an environment construct i, I think it's a bit of both i think it's they've got huge obesity rates in the middle east at the moment don't yeah they? yeah right. So, for both reasons they've got the money now so they don't have to work and also it's hot as balls yeah and there's the cultural element it's very family orientated you know you go home you spend time with your family as a big family when yeah. it's hot outside you know you'll stay up late as a family indoors um, so yeah there's certain factors that don't expose them to experience you know multi sports growing up um, yeah obesity is a, a massive sort of epidemic out there at the minute which they are trying to tackle um, you know, particularly around a spire zone, um, they're trying to address that. We've got Spire Active, which is a gym. They've got um, parks and pathways, and they're trying to encourage people to go walking in the malls because it's air conditioned. So you're trying to take out, you know, <laughs> the excuses. You know, it's fifty odd degrees, yeah, but you know, come walk in the mall and be active there. Um, yeah. So it's getting there. So um, you, you obviously you're advocating that they they do multiple sports as as many sports as possible, as young as possible. Yeah, I mean, that's probably the best way, and a way we attack that in Aspire is the year seven kids or the first years at Aspire um, go into what we call foundation program. Yeah. Um, so although when they come into Aspire, they come into a sports, they come into table tennis or squash, athletics or football, in that first year, they still train with the squads, Yeah. you know, most days, but in the mornings, they take part in multi-sports, so we have fencing, gymnastics, wrestling, football, handball, basketball, volleyball, we are trying to, almost in a false environment, you know, expose them to the skills that we'd have had growing up or in PE lessons. So we are trying to address it that way. Mm. Um, but even coming out of that, having a year, we still find kids that struggle to squat and to lunge. So yes, it's starting to address the problem, but I think there's a deeper issue there um, in terms of teaching the kids these movements and I think, like we say, that lays the foundation. If you've got those fundamental movement skills, you can then progress on. But for us, it's like, that is a big focus of our program right now. Yeah. Um, especially, you shouldn't be do well. You, you can't really make the case to do anything beyond that until you've nailed it. Yeah. Like you say, big rocks first. And yeah. for us, yeah. that's it's like going out of the house up. naked, but in a real fancy suit and <laughs> so real fancy tie and hats. Like yeah. you're missing the, the more important part. <laughs> you, put, you put the icing on the cake, but yeah. there's, there's no cake there. So what's the point in putting tasty icing on a cake made of dog shit? <laughs> so one of the things that I remember from our time when we worked together at Wasp was 
a, a big issue for me was the sheer volume of work. So like, we said it already, like multiple sports are a good thing if you're a developing athlete. But the the trouble arises when you're really good at those sports because then you you get flogged. Yeah, yeah Matt, you get flogged. Remember, he was national level uh, athlete, track and field. Went to a private school, so they wanted their pound of flesh. Then he was England county club school on top. Yeah. How do you how do you address that as a strength and conditioning coach? So a kid comes to you and says, "You know what? I'm dead." Wait, you, how do you? I mean, it's you can make an argument for both sides. You want than to be general athletes that can do anything. But yeah. yet, they need to specialise at some point. Yeah. You know, at what age? Well, that's the question, isn't it? And that, I think that's individual for every setting uh, and every, uh, every every club, even in the premiership. You know? Yeah. Um, you know, Billy Vanipola. When, when did Billy start specialising? Probably when he was... Birth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, you might have a kid. So we've got, we've got kids coming through now that, you know, they're breaking into the senior squad. Um... And they probably started specialising. Well, I, I know I know one lad that started specialising. I think he was just turned eighteen. Yeah. And he's. What did he do prior to that? Uh, he was he was at college. which did multi sports. Um, he was a absolute streak of piss. I think he did move distance running as well on top. So he mm. was like he didn't even specialise in the power sport. Yeah. Um, but you know you turn around and, and he's and he's just multi talented. He can move. Um, he he lacks some fundamental game understanding because he hasn't specialised. Yeah. But he's got the physical skills you need. Yeah. Just put some weight on him and send him off to the coach. Yeah. Um, I suppose as well. I think sometimes with kids, you're almost waiting for the sport to pick the athlete, so it doesn't necessarily yeah. become immediately obvious. Like you know, this kid's got the the physical. Unlike Billy, Billy, you know, it's pretty obvious. But like there are some guys where they're you know they're still trying to figure out actually which sport am I best at. Yeah. And that I think that's it can be quite difficult because the answer you get might not be the answer that your organisation wants. Oh, definitely, definitely. You know, I think it's increasing the, the amount of um, late entrance, you're saying, into rugby union. Yeah. I think I think that is increasing as you you, know, you find these anomalies from nowhere and our recruitment's getting ben wider. Yeah, you know, our recruitment is... is so Ben Morgan was a pipe fitter at 21? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think you then take two sort of opposite ends of the spectrums there. Who's the, the rugby guy that went through discus at the Olympics then went to the NFL? Lawrence Sequoia. Yeah, so you've yeah. got him and then you've got your guy here, the shot putter. He's a hammer thrower, a chin, yeah. 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 So, absolute athlete and you yeah. say minimal rugby experience but boy, can he move as he being Well, I think powerful. that's an interesting point is you can be a late entrant to the sport but the later you do it, the, I think the more physical talent you have to have because we've identified two yeah. people there. Yeah. Lawrence Sequoia is, I think he broke the British discus record in his early 20s. Chin ends, squatting 250, was an elite level hammer thrower. Yeah. Uh, ben Morgan apparently was 140 kilos, a bit of a fat fucker, but 140 kilos is pretty big. Yeah, exactly. But it's, 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 it's position specific. Yeah. You know, you're not going to get that guy that comes in, no, no matter how physically talented he is. Yeah. If you can't scrummage and he's 20, yeah. well, it's late. not happening it's too late but yeah. you've missed it let's throw a rugby league sort of topic in here as well Dwayne Chambers yeah you know sprinter comes into rugby league he's got all the speed yeah but yeah. if you can't catch and pass and tackle and arguably that's a less technical sport than rugby union yeah because I'm, I, I was shocked watching Super League on the telly but also when I when I did work in the NRL I was shocked at how young players were starting <laughs> in the NRL compared to rugby union yeah. and arguably it's because there's a lot less variables to, to concentrate on within rugby league. It's basically sprint, tackle, pass, yeah, and and run. You know, and 
we had, I think we had uh, the average age of this, the Rooster squad that won the NRL was 23. <laughs> Which is, it's unreal. But when you've got, I guess, genetic potential and freaks like that, you know. Yeah. It helps. But I mean, yeah, we had boys debuting at 17, 18, and you look at them and you think to the man, they're physically not capable. But when you've got the technical capability, it's like, well, you know. Yeah. You yeah. can get away with it. Fuck, it turns them into dickheads, though. <laughs> yeah, and you can't get away from it for so long. You know, you, you, being you, a dickhead you, you or selecting right, your kids. Yeah, <laughs> you get thrown into to a full season of Premiership rugby, and you're 18, and you're not physically prepared. Yeah, you know, you're probably not going to last. You reckon a season? Yeah. yeah. How many how many players do we see at watch? Guys that outstanding physically talented get thrown into their first season. Yeah. They they just little niggles here and there, and their body isn't. It's just not there. Yeah. Well, it was interesting. I had a conversation. I think it was with David Joyce when I was in Sydney, and he just said. The there's always a lot of injuries compared to the rest of the squad in the rookies that come up just because they cannot handle the the volume and intensity of a, of a professional environment. Like speaking to those guys, I think they'll hit sixty kilometers in a preseason, that's, which is yeah. But I think that's it, double the highest that we've gone this year, and that that was a big week for us. The AFL is a, a completely different breed, though, isn't it? Like they don't really have academy structures underneath. You know, you kind of adopt these athletes through the draft, and they've come through different programs. And they might be coming from different countries. Yeah. And then the way the AFL tackles it is, you know, some clubs limit what those athletes are exposed to. So the rookies might get, say, 80% of the training volume that week. So they are trying yeah. to address it. Yeah. I think it's the same in rugby. You, know? you don't really want to expose an 18-year-old kid to a full season of yeah. that because you are going to break yeah. them. But, you know, you need to expose them, drip feed them as and when you can. Yeah. You know, some circumstances with injuries, you have to buy it. Yeah. Yeah. But you, you manage players in and out of their yeah. careers, don't you? Um, from, from my perspective, I see a lot of players being managed out of their careers, but not so many being managed into their yeah. careers. Single swim. Yeah, and that's that's a product of you know of the money that's in rugby these days, and, and unfortunately, where the game could potentially go. Yeah. If you know there aren't good coaches in place. Yeah. Chatting to one of the guys when I was up in Scotland um, around long-term athlete development, new physical development, whatever you want to call it, and it was about one of the young halfbacks that come through the club and was playing for Scotland. Um, still relatively young, physically not massively developed, but his response to, to the question about um, youth athlete development and this athlete is like, when you're good enough, you're good enough. It's not, okay, we're going to hold you back to you hit X, Y, and Z. It's like, if you can play at that level, you're going to play at that level. And it's like, how do you manage that process around it yeah. and develop yeah. that athlete? Because, you know, you look at rugby league, Sam Tompkins, you know, this kid was a, a stick, but until there's a couple of injuries, this kid wasn't going to look in and now he's a star, went to the NRL, you know. That didn't go so well. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, they paid him the best part of half a million bucks for it not to go well, though. I mean, I'll suck for that amount. <laughs> um, I what? Think, sorry, yeah, go just, ahead. Yeah. Just another one to touch on, sort of, as we came into this sort of topic here. Um, I think you boys spoke about the other day, which I think is massive when you're saying you've got a kid at club rugby that might be playing international at private school, and it's like, who owns that program? I think what you boys were saying was, you know, there's only sort of so much that athlete can sort of take mm. and who's going to be the one that sort of steps up and loses out in terms Invariably of it has to be you yeah, and yeah you, you guys were saying at Wasp is that you were happy to let them do sort of their school program their school S&C program you know at the expense of you guys not being able to work for them how you'd want to oh, mate, sometimes you just send them home yeah yeah. and, <laughs> and they go well what did you do he's got much better yeah <laughs> and they like, they fucking grow half a foot in like three months and like, oh my god what program have you got this kid on it's yeah. called sleep do you want to talk about youth 
development. It's like they've got school, they've got social stress. Mm. You look at um, Brian Mann's stuff. Um, yeah. With his D1 athletes. and you so like a 10 times higher injury rate if you, you're in academic yeah, stress yeah, and you have yeah. to come up from the bench. Yeah. yeah it's so crazy. it's like things you don't necessarily consider as stressors. Yeah. But yeah, when you're a teenage boy worrying about girls, school. GCSEs. Yeah, yeah, exams. You want to be the England star, but you're worried about club rugby. I remember we had one at Wasp Academy. His, around the time of his GCSEs, he wasn't sure if he was going to get re-signed. He managed to get a girl pregnant at the same time. I was like, fucking hell. Yeah, and, and what do you do? Well, You're like, oh, it's heavy squats. Like, oh, no, he just held his hand and said, you know, yeah, see maybe, you next week. Some days you go, okay, yeah, rest. And yeah. I think that's Name mad. the baby Keir, come back next week. <laughs> but what you, you forget as well is like, for some of our monetary stuff that we put in place is that some of these kids are actually incurring higher training loads than yeah. professional players. I remember we had an academy kid who... I think at the, at the time, the first team were averaging about 2,500 arbitrary units. And we had a kid at a private school hit 5,000. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, you can say, you can say that they're playing at is completely different, but it's yeah. all relevant. Yeah, yeah. You know? Uh, it's still probably more than he needs. It's probably what he can handle right and what he needs. Yeah, is he developing or is he just getting tired and fatigued? You know? Yeah. Like, yeah. And I think you, sh- you shoot yourself in the foot because if, if his body gets used to 5,000 arbitrary units of training, you're going to need more than that to get him to progress. It's not even that, but you bring back down and he breaks. We've had senior academy guys that train a full first team week of training, go to loan clubs two nights a week, they drop out the next year, they don't go to loan club anymore, they train load drops and they break. Yeah. And they're, they're and you said that about a kid you had at England under twenties, like his his yeah. load was ridiculously low. Yeah, these guys are screaming out to want to do more, and we're trying to protect them. But we're actually breaking them. Yeah, like they want a high training load. That's what he's used to doing. He's yeah. what he's done for the last five years. He's been at school. Yeah, yeah. Like, Public school boys, they were like, I remember at Harrow. Like, I think the only two big kids I ever saw at Harrow was Billy and Maro Toji. Yeah, because they're both freaks. All the other Harrow kids were just like sticks because they were just. How many hours a period a day is it? Two hours a day? Oh god! Then you add on whatever crazy things they have to do and go and farm or something, and then special harrow sports. It's uh... birching ceremonies. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good. It's a good place to go to school. Then. Oh man, I'd go there if I could. Um, what have been some big things that you've changed your mind about? Some hard lessons you've had to learn as a coach in say the last twelve months. Twelve months. I'll drag it back over a few years and I think working in clubs... You've, you've been spotless for the last 12 months, haven't you? <laughs> Mate, when you're unemployed for a few of those, it's, uh, <laughs> it's hard to learn from those ones. But I, I think a massive one in terms of working in club sports is politics. Um, yeah. In terms of players, but also coaches. Um, you know, I have an approach of it's, you know, the person first and the athlete. And I think that puts you in good stead. Um, in terms of working with the athlete and they appreciate what you're doing. Um, I've had the, the misfortune of having to work in, in football and you know experience probably a fraction of the politics that goes on there compared to sort of in the UK. And in the I, was, I enjoyed the, the WhatsApp updates. <laughs> and, yeah, and there's some things that are out of your control, but you know when you've got players or when you've got a coach that brings in other fitness staff as well uh, mid-season once a coach gets fired... You know, it puts you in an, an awkward predicament and you know the work you've done with those athletes leading up to that sort of stands you in good stead when you have athletes coming and asking to do sessions with you you know I want to get quicker I want to do speed work what can I do um, even though you you've had to step back from the program with the new coaches coming in um, the relationships that you've built with the athletes stand the test of time I think you guys probably both 
have experienced that with athletes that probably moved up or moved on and still stay in touch with you. Right, um, that's you know to me that's probably the biggest barometer of are you doing your job as a coach? Yeah. You know because I I it sounds corny as fuck, but I think if you if you train the athlete and you train for contracts and premierships, like you might win, you might lose. Yeah. If you train them as people and try and make sure that you pump out good people at the end of it, there's the potential to win every time. Yeah. And if you have got guys, you know, emailing you, asking you for programs three, four, five years later, which you know, I've been lucky enough to have that happen, you think, well, actually, maybe I am making a difference to these people. Better people, baby. Better people. <laughs> it takes good people to win championships, I'm told. I've never, I've never won a championship <laughs> with my team. But, you and me both. You know, they, they're kind of... I've heard a, a couple of teams it's been attributed to is the, the no dickheads policy. Like Sydney Swans and no dickheads won a championship. Um, I'm told the All Blacks only hire one dickhead. So they, they give a little bit of um, room in their team for, for a dickhead. But, you know, if, if you've got a team full of them, it's probably not, not going to work. Well, let's just point that dickhead in the right direction. Are you the current England captain? Yeah. Use him as a tool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he's a super nice guy as well. Like he's you a nice guy, and that's what you want. Like, I remember being at a game, it was Wasps against Northampton, so I used to watch that quite keenly because I worked at Wasps and I'm from Northampton. And I remember there was one game where Courtney Laws, it was where he nearly broke Nicky Robinson in half. By the end of the game, he walked off and they booed him and I thought, that is the perfect response that you should get from a crowd, an away crowd. Like, if you've done your job, they should fucking hate you and boo you. <laughs> so, what have you changed your mind about, Ryan? What have I changed my mind about? Um, wow, lots. It's hard to, to actually think of something. <laughs> um, I think I, I sort of echo Aiden's points really. Um, yeah, I, I still see a lot of people coming in um, as interns, etc. Some some immense knowledge, you know, knowledge that I'm tapping into, and I'm. It's great to have interns because they yeah. teach you things, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're more effective than you. Well, no, it, it's just it's just. Our currency is people, man. Yeah. And if you can't communicate, and I'm still not the best at this, so we'll <laughs> confess to that, my communication is poor. Come, come in on a Tuesday. <laughs> Ryan, how you doing? Yeah, I'm all right. <laughs> but if you can't communicate, then... Yeah. Then, then, then none of your knowledge is getting out. You know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's not going to happen. You aren't going to work with people. You're not going to get your points across to your coach. Your athletes aren't going to understand a word you're saying. It's... I kind of see these people. Um, one of the best books I've ever read on that is Crucial Conversations. Who's that by? I cannot remember to save my life. Mm. But Crucial Conversations is, it changed the way I looked at communication yeah. and um, just working with our currency, which is humans. And I think back to the difficulties that I had in that job at WASP, which was you're basically at the mercy of the public schools and you've got these schools, a lot of money, real good facilities but not necessarily the the knowledge or the the staff to optimize the training of their guys and they spend so much time at school they can make or break what you're doing so you're effectively trying to coax them into to doing what you want for you and uh, there's there's a couple of ways to go about it in terms of that relationship one is trying to beat them over the head and say you're going to do this and the other one is is trying to make them think it's their idea like i always try and take the approach of convince the head coach it's his idea yeah and then when it goes well, pat him on the back and say, good job, great idea. And It's, it's conversation manipulation, isn't it? Yeah. Like, it, it? Manipulation adds a negative connotation, yeah. but you, essentially you are manipulating a conversation to get what you want out of it. Yeah. But that's not a negative. Yeah. Women wear makeup every day. That's manipulation. It's go. still socially acceptable. Yeah. 
I think the other big mistake um, really is, or, or the change is just realising that I am an assistant coach. We are all going to be assistant coaches. To the head coach? Yeah. So what to do you the, think to, about, to I saw you watching James Smith's presentation earlier. What do you think about his idea that the head coach should be answerable to the head of performance? I think it's an amazing concept. Yeah. Will we see it in our time? Maybe. Yeah. What? I think you're probably getting or going in that direction. I think with the, especially the AFL, with the high performance managers. Yeah. Like they are, I think, the second best paid people in the club behind the head coach. As it should yeah. be. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I think that line's going to get closer and closer, but you need the right person in the right place. And I think if you understand the sport and you can communicate with the head coach, like, yeah, you are effectively an assistant technical coach who just happens to understand the physical side of the game as well. Um, you know, you go back to sort of where the origins of S&C really started. It was athletics. And, you know, I'm in a position where we have quite a few athletics guys that have had good athletes and have taken that process through, you know, from the S&C to, you know, maybe having a physio doing their own nutrition and coaching them. Mm. And, you know, as it's branched out to other sports, a lot of athletics coaches have gone into rugby or to football or to AFL to well, do with the Soviets it started as it wasn't that you were a strength and conditioning coach you were just you were the, the coach yeah. and yeah. you had to study strength and conditioning as part of your yeah. uh, your development as a coach I suppose the advantage of that is is you are across all facets of the training because the, the, the problem that we have or I think we have with big staffs now is everyone works in their little box Yeah, what it's I do affects what you do what you do affects what I do and so on and with, if you don't have systems in place to be aware of what everyone's doing you know that's that's when things can go wrong but that being said if you're playing for a team that wins the championship who's the media interviewing yeah not, not the performance director yeah. they're going to interview and who's coach. getting fired if it doesn't go well exactly so maybe you're not an assistant coach but you're a facilitator yeah the Machiavellian one in, in the background pulling the strings exactly, exactly. <laughs> now I would, uh, speaking of WhatsApp again I was getting some serious photos from you and Sam last year in, in uh, California and Arizona you went out to uh, Dan Paths and, and did a week at Altis what was that experience like and have, have there been any other learning experiences that have come close to that for you um, I mean, I've been pretty lucky to visit some really good places but um, you just got to see the following that they've got on, me, on social media um, the amount of good coaches and athletes that are drawn. How many followers do they have? Up. Not as many as you, BK. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, of course. Apart from my visit to Japan, which is currently going okay. Um, Been to the Samurai Museum. Robot Cafe. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Can't be Robot Cafe. Godzilla, Sushi, Samurai, mate. <laughs> Tokyo's done completely. You missed the Penis Festival though. Uh, penis Festival. And Takeshi's Castle. Where's Takeshi's Castle? Did you know that got filmed in the eighties? Can't believe that. It's so much earlier than I thought. Broken my heart. Epic. Andy, who another coach from uh, Joey's, was here last week, and he thought it was actually filmed in the two thousands because Craig Charles was narrating over it. <laughs> anyway, off topic. But yeah, I, I mean, Altis is. Um, if anyone's had the the pleasure to just interact with like with Dan and Stuart, you just their knowledge aside, just the way they interact and uh, work with their athletes is. I've just not seen anyone else do it that way. Um, do you think that's just a, a consequence of years under the belt or is it the environment they place themselves in where they're, they're learning from different people around them? Because, you know, like I, I've heard Buddy Morris speak a couple of times now. Dan Paff and Buddy Morris have each other on their doorstep and like that's only going to help them. 
is that but it's also just a product of being in well numerous high level environments that they weren't happy with yeah you know and the reason I think reality is is where it is is because it's just built out of frustration and that's what's been created is it exactly and wanting to see their sport go in the right direction yeah that's probably going to take a few quid isn't it for me as as a coach like the biggest bugbear for me is people that sort of moan and bitch about stuff but don't come to you with solutions and it sort of seems like they don't tell me about the pain of labour give me the fucking baby exactly yeah (laughs) if you don't like it you know do something about it and yeah you know that's what sounds like Alex had you know an experience we had at Al Arabi um, in Qatar is we'd always be on the pitch for training and the the head coach would moan like the players aren't here you know we're due to start and they'd be getting their sweet tea from the calf and just strolling in and you know it's like you know that's easy to fix you know if training starts at six you know yeah. at five to six you're either in or we lock the gate yeah and we did that and you know it happens once and it never like, happens yeah. again it, one, i used to do the same one guy got sent to extra conditioning and uh, everyone figured out you know i don't want to do extra conditioning i'll turn up on time yeah. and it's like what's the solution lock the gate people figure it out i'll tell you speaking of uh, learning experiences i went out to the satanic college conference in november on youth snc yeah dave Aldridge was there who won who was part of the world cup winning staff and he he basically i, I wrote about it in the blog he he was I think it was the year two thousand. He lives in Australia now, so he's at SeaWorld on the Gold Coast, and he's watching the dolphins do like this backflip through a hoop, catch a, bit, a fish or whatever, and dive back in the water. And he's thinking, we've got props that can't even fucking lift in the lineup properly. <laughs> so what he did was he sought out the dolphin trainer and spoke to this woman, and he he interned as a dolphin trainer for a couple of weeks, and now he he said he takes an animal behavior modeling approach with his athletes. He said, if you do it right, he's going to make a massive fuss. And if you don't do it right, he's just going to remove the, the reinforcement. And it's, it's like you said, like, if, if you turn up on time, great job. If you don't, the door's locked and you're probably going to learn pretty quick. Train them like dolphins. Yeah. <laughs> so have there been any learning experiences or, or trips that you've made that have stuck with you as a coach? Mate, I think there's a few. Um, not so much trips, but more just meeting and interacting with practitioners so moving on from the outer sort of perspective you've obviously in the UK you've got Jonas Dodo um, off the back of his seminar he had Ben Rosenblatt as well who I'd visited before and you know just the way they simplify things down um, you, know, you know if I said to you talk to me about speed training you can go really in depth and go shin angles knee angles this much force horizontal vertical and you've seen yesterday, it doesn't always materialise no. <laughs> but then you go you know just knee up and drive simple especially like working in Qatar, you working out here, the language barrier. Yeah. Mate, I had the fortune of seeing Nick Winkleman present at the UKCA on internal, external q and I thought, this stuff's amazing. I moved to Qatar and they didn't really speak English. I'm like, well, that's gone out the window straight away. You know, you find another way, you demo or you keep it. In a way, it helps because it forces you to be economical with your words. Yeah. Because you you can't be ineconomical. (laughs) Yeah, and like we were saying earlier, it's like the whole point of being a coach is at some point you've become obsolete because your athletes have figured it out themselves. You've helped your job them is to steer the ship. Kind yeah. Of thing. And you know, if you can do that as simply as possible or as easy as possible that, you know, rugby players, not always the brightest bunch. Yeah. So if you can keep it real simple and they understand, then it's perfect. And that's kind of the message those guys give out. Um, same with Dan House. Um, being fortunate enough to get in and see him. I know you boys know him well. Yeah. Um, but again, it's just simple understands it all but doesn't have to tell it to the players yeah you know it's we're doing this because x y and z it's like no you need to put force here boom move forward yeah yeah. it yeah. relates to rugby in this way i'll try and tailor it like i'll try and i'll try and hit in the middle yeah. if it's obvious that the, the, you know you've got a, a guy who's not that cerebral 
it doesn't make any sense to him, he doesn't care, you drop it down a notch and just say, you know, you know, imagine you're fucking the air, squeeze your ass, smash the imaginary midget in the face with your knee, push back through the floor for acceleration, for example. Yeah. But then you've got other guys that want to be more intellectual about it and then you can kind of adjust. Yeah. Yeah. Overcoaching. It's like, yeah. It's, we all want to do it. And you catch yourself doing it yeah. and you're like, wow, screw that up. Yep. <laughs> it's like the more you talk, the more chance you have of screwing up. Just, you know, what are the key points? Boom, boom, boom. Athlete gets it. You know, keep yeah. it short and sweet as opposed to just whining on. I think we all, we've all done it. I yeah. think yeah. talk about interns and new coaches. Like, I have this information, I've got to share it. You yeah. get to the point now, it's like, actually, like. And you realise, actually, like, you can see it with younger coaches. You know, I'm not to say I'm never guilty of it now, but you see it with younger coaches. Like, they, they launch into something and explain it. And before you realise, the guys have been stood there for 30 seconds. And you yeah. maybe multiply that by 10 reps. That's that's a big chunk of time that you're missing yeah. when they could be moving and you could just be coaching on the fly with a couple of cues and a couple of words. That's, that's your timing as well. I mean, even if, even if you put a simple cue at the wrong time, yeah. it still has a really poor effect. If, I think you see the best coaches have a simple, effective cue and they do it at exactly the right time. Yeah. They might even wait for that set to finish. Yeah. Whereas you might have gone in, boom, yeah. go through, but they would wait for the set to finish, and they might finish, they might walk around for it and come back yeah. and bang straight before their next set then they put that one little cue yeah, at the right yeah, time yeah. Um, it's like comedy time yeah screw it up it's <laughs> funny I can't remember the name of this or who did the study but I think there was one study where depending on the cue more infrequent cueing actually resulted in better performance than more frequent cue because it's almost like once you get in the head you kind of choke performance they think alright I need to do this I need to do this it yeah. it's just yeah as opposed to yeah. just one or two right get your reps in the bank, okay, what's the, the biggest issue you see there that I can correct that's going to have the biggest bang for the buck? And that can, that's maybe the advantage of, uh, I've mentioned him again, fucking Franz Bosch, <laughs> but dynamical systems, by shaping the environment, you don't have to say stuff which confuses the athlete. You just put constraint on the task and say, right, off you go. And you constraint to your freedom. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Don't Good get part. Tom Farrow started on that, mate. You speak to Tom <laughs> Farrow about constraints, develop it. We actually, he and I had a conversation where we're talking about constraints and work and I said, you know, I think it's a good thing because you're working with a team of coaches, you need to put constraints on, we do this at this time, like I said yesterday, you know, we're going to do this at this time, we're going to do this at this time, here are the exercises which are appropriate in this block, here's the exercise appropriate in this block, here's how we're going to work and it's going to flow like this. That's really, really good if you're working with a group of coaches where you have to clone yourself. By putting those constraints on yourself and others, it makes it easier to replicate uh, the system and make sure that no matter where your athletes are or who's in front of them, they're probably getting this, a, a, a consistent standard of, of coaching. But he and I had that conversation. He said, yeah, I agree. And then we managed to get to the garden path of how uh, Seinfeld, when he was writing the Seinfeld show with, um, what's his face of Kirby Enthusiasm? Larry David. They had to write an episode where it was about masturbation, but then the network banned them from using the word masturbation. And because that constraint had been put on them in the writing process, they came up with 200 euphemisms for the word <laughs> masturbate in the episode. So, like you said, your, your constraints can be your freedom. Oh, that's a whole lot of wanking. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's massive. Like, yeah, we have our systems in place with coaching athletes, but I think one of the biggest things I've taken away from sort of seeing you coach here, you coach with the Argentina guys pre-World Cup, with the Exos stuff. I've had more clubs than Tiger Woods. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, when you know people ask you like, what's the Exos methodology? You know, you know the results these guys have in such a short period of time, you know, are impressive. And it's like, it's just the system. Um, yeah. I think 
like checklist manifesto that the book sort of touches on it. So, you know, you have your yeah. checklist to work through. The same for systems. If you have, a but it's it's not explicit. Every single step you must do this. It's yeah. the, like you said, it's the key points. Yeah, it's the key points that kind of light the way. But as you've got like your your four phase program you have on your uh, your website, and you take athletes through, it's like uh, Exos talk about having that thread run through the program, and it's like right, this block will lead onto this block to lead onto this block, and you've got your system, and I think whatever sport you work in, it's adaptable to that sport, but that system sort of carries you through and just sort of guides you through, um, yeah. which I think is massive, you know, like the S and C coach, you can get caught up in everything. You second guess yourself. Yeah, man, I'm doing it now. Like we've come up with this system and I've been using it for three years, but even now it's got to the point where I'm, I'm second guessing myself and you do need like guys like you visit me or, or by yourself to take a step back and say, actually, if we had to write it down on a postcard, what's the, what's the one or two things that we're trying to achieve in this phase and let's try and achieve those. And if, if we do that, great, then we can move on to other stuff. But it's, I think it's better to do one thing well than try and fail to do, to do 10 things. Mate, we were chatting today we were out obviously sightseeing while you were working and discussing your program and you know the special strength training the speed stuff and we're like what would we do differently and there was tweaks here and there but it's like the underlying factor is you know from a strength and power perspective you guys are squatting benching pulling chinning doing speed it's like you're hitting all the bases and it's yeah. like there's a thousand ways to skin a cat it's just what suits yeah. your preference and your environment and you just sort of tweak it as you go and like you're saying you've had this system over a couple of years but it's still evolving still Oh, for sure. And I think that's the essence of essence, isn't it? It's like not I've got one system and it works, period. Yeah. It's I'll, I'll go through it, I'll revise my thought process, my thinking, what am I trying to get? And I think you come out to somewhere like here where it challenges you from a coaching perspective or an environment oh, perspective. Political. <laughs> yeah, but if you go back to a more established rugby club like in the UK or Australia that you know has been around for longer and the athletes are international England, Australia, CAPS, you know, stuff you learn here can affect that system where actually it's, you've had to simplify it here that you go back to UK and it works in a more complex environment, mm. but it's made your... And maybe because simple. you've got the staff around you to implement it. Yeah. And, and your, your program hasn't got any sexier. You've just got simpler. I mean, yeah. you, you look at the these old coaches, the Dan Paths, your, your booze. They've got training menus. Dan Baker. Yeah, yeah. They have training menus. These menus haven't changed Yeah. for ages. So it's not... Have the athletes getting bored or... Or tired of what you're doing, or are you getting tired of coaching it, and then you change it, mate. That's the biggest thing. Like when people will say to me, "Oh, you know, the boys, the boys might get bored. We need to change the program." I was like, "You know what's really fucking boring? Losing." Yeah, yeah. And it's it's it it's not your job to entertain. It would be nice to entertain the boys, but really, your job is to make them better and to to improve all of those physical and technical qualities. I would rather absolutely smash those and have a a bunch of bored athletes than have a bunch of you know guys jumping around, doing handstands, all that shit, they're having a, you know, a super awesome time, but actually they're not moving anywhere physically. Yeah, I think you look in the grand scheme of things, like the boys will come in and squat, and they might squat through every seri- like pre-season. We've squatted every week. Yeah, but that squat takes, what, 15, 20 minutes max? Yeah. And then you get the novelty of, you know, you've got your units, you've got conditioning, you've got rugby, you've got speed, you've got change of direction. Like, yeah, <laughs> surprisingly, surprisingly, when it gets heavy, all the boredom goes out the window and they want to start and competing. Start goes through the roof, yeah. Mate. Absolutely. It's the biggest thing, egos, isn't it? And yeah. you want to change it up? Yeah. Right, put some more weight on the bar. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you're not bored. And, and you know they're bored because they're lifting. Yeah. If, they, if a rugby player was bored, he ain't lifting heavy. Yeah. You don't care. Absolutely. He's on his phone. Yeah. <laughs> no phones in the gym. <laughs> um, 
let's talk about GPS. So, I mean, I've, I've been picking your brains about how you use GPS within a rugby setting, what the value is, what are variables to look at, and obviously that's compounded by the difficulties of if you're in a team where you don't have the money for a unit for each player, like we've discussed that, that was the case at Broncos. Yeah. It's the case here. What have been some of the key things that you've learned about GPS and, and its its implication for training rugby athletes? I think the biggest thing I've learned is that most skills coaches don't give a shit. Yep. So, you know, you get GPS for the first time and you're, oh, these, these cool things that I'm going to do. I've read about this, read about that, I'm going to put this in place. Goes back to fundamentals again, right? They don't care. If you can <laughs> give them like a simple traffic like score, how one out of five score, how a play did, how they're feeling, yeah. it'll make sense to them. Or a graph, you know, at, at best. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's the main thing. Is is to know those things where we have to take it, monitor everything, but feedback a few things. Yeah. Um, and in rugby specific context. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah so yeah. the coaches understand, like, obviously not from my experience, but I was fortunate enough to go and see Port Adelaide um, when they were over in Dubai. Hell of a staff. Made great setup. Like so impressed. I knew nothing about AFL. Um, rocked up over there. You know. Darren Burgess was, you know, kind enough to have me over, and I can't. I've watched AFL on the TV, but I didn't realise it's like fifty odd players, you know, fifteen odd stars. The squads are huge. We Mate. were at um, Camp Wallaby once with the Roosters, and the Swans were there. It's just they're like an army. <laughs> yeah, and they're all mic'd up. And if like the biggest thing that hit me was it just everything ran like clockwork. You know, yeah. you had guys doing MAS runs outside the pitch. They had some handball games. They had some other stuff going on, but everyone knew everything, and it just moved and worked. And uh, was fortunate enough to spend a bit of time with the head of sports science, Stuart Graham, and that's what he had. Is he had his traffic light system, and then they had different zones of how it related to the games. And they talked through that, and it's like you know this relates to, you know, below a game average, or this is game average, or this is above. But you're like, if you're a coach and you come in, you know, what's the total distance? What's the high speed running? Oh, this is equivalent to a game, or. You know, it was above a game and it's green traffic light, red traffic light. It's easy. Yeah. The coaches understand it. They can process that information. I'm not saying it's the point where when football people go, you know, we are going to train to the demands of the game for this specifically and base it all off that. But mm. from a contextual standpoint, the coach understands it. How they, did I do? <laughs> yeah. And they can understand, like, how does my drill relate to what the boys are going to get exposed to? Yeah. And if it's... Because it may look similar, but it doesn't necessarily hit what you're looking for from a physical perspective. Yeah. And if you can compare training to a game and tailor it towards that like everyone wants to make training harder than a game so that when you play it's easy on that note check out the rugby strength coach blog where i wrote a blog post exactly about that like basically at some point the stimulation of training in games is not enough to develop physically you must train above or below the intensity of the game which is why we gym yeah that's why we have a job (laughs) so um what have been some some of the drawbacks of the different systems that you use. I know you and I have both used GP Sports. Ryan's used is it Statsport and and Catapult. Yeah. It seems to me that Catapult's the gold standard. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. Um, well, yeah. I think you look at the research and yeah, you know, having Gabbert having worked with Catapult, yeah. you know, it's got the most studies out. And they've got Ben Peterson on board now in the, in the USA. Yeah, yeah. Like, they're doing some serious it's research. It's only getting bigger, isn't it, and growing? But you know, as a sport with technology, I think Carl Val is like the biggest sort of guy to harp on about it and it gets annoying at times but you're like this guy's right you know is it valid is it reliable you know show me it measures what it's meant to measure 
Yeah. And you know, and he said it's going to be obsolete within five years. Yeah. 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 You were talking about it the other day with smallest square foot change. Like, can you be certain that what you're measuring is actually measuring what you think it is? And is it you get, yeah, you get or signal or noise. Yeah, yeah. I I did a, a, a small test with some of the stat sports units, individual units at a time, walking around the pitch, and you see the trace where thought I walked. Yeah, I did not walk that far. Like, yeah, I did not walk that far. So you look at that and you're like, you're hanging your hat on some of these measurements that you're you're pleaded to get five minutes with your coach to talk to him about yeah. and find out actually it's not yeah yeah like, it's not foolproof you know you've got to look at what martin boucher did a couple of years ago when he was at the spy you know 50 gps units or 30 whatever put them in a cart and drag them around you see that the difference is there and between the individual units yeah and i think it was either him or matt barley was talking um about it at the spy train load conference we had this year and the difference between when they update the software as well is you still don't change the algorithm yeah, yeah. um so and is it right like your position in, on earth can change it according to like your angle of the horizon and well i think yeah. it depends on the satellites you've got yeah. available at the same time and you know the biggest problem you have is you train in one place all the time but you train at different times so you play in different locations yeah you know, are you making sure you've got the right sort of signal there um but the biggest thing like, i shot myself in the foot with when i saw that study is i hadn't seen that when i was at the broncos because obviously he hadn't done it yet but like i said we had 10 units and we're rotating those units on a daily basis with you know the key players we're trying to watch or yeah are we covering all positions or who's who's not injured you know at some point it's like, yeah like, there's only because presumably it gets even more important if you've got an injured player because you are having to carefully progress that load to get yeah. them back yeah and if you're getting that error of you know you're changing the unit all the time or training at different times yeah you know is the player doing what you think the player's actually yeah. doing so it's just things to consider now and like you're in the same boat with you know, ten GPS units. Yeah, you've even you've thirteen. But we put squad. three on. Yeah. We we put three on our most soon to return rehabbers. Yeah. So we, I, I, that's one thing I've tried to change is be really on top of on feet volume for rehabbers, just because we need to get them back up to where they were, but do it in the right manner, not too yeah. not too slow, not too fast. But then yeah, we have uh, we have uh, ten others that we we try and have one prop, one hooker. Uh, one lock, maybe a couple of back rows, a couple of half backs, some centers and back three, and then that's the best that we can do now is like try and try and look at the average positional demands and then apply them to other people to everyone yeah. in that team. But then obviously you've got different people that, that play the game differently. Like you know, for example, Sam Jones at Wasps, Billy Vanapola. Yeah. Same position, probably not going to get the same GPS measures in a game. But that's that's a reflection of of where your current team is. Yeah. You know, do, is, is having 35 units going to change the way you implement not unless you have the staff and the resources to exactly so and that's the thing like I think you if to do GPS well these days it needs to be a full time member of staff doing it yeah yeah, yeah. so it's monitoring across the board isn't it yeah if sports you, science yeah if you've got the time to dedicate to, to sports science and monitoring yeah, yeah then, then, then employ all these sexy gizmos but if, again if your culture isn't right then it yeah. doesn't matter because you're going to get you get people lying on your monitoring anyway of course and, and then you're going to get people aren't going to listen um, you're going to get potentially a prisoner and guard kind of relationship if, if there's a bit of a negative vibe going around yeah. so I think I think GPS where it is now is a reflection of where we are as strength conditioning and sports science in general too complex it's all an experiment <laughs> yeah. well I think you know it takes the first year for you to actually get useful information 
because you're, you're still trying to find your feet for the first year, find out what's normal for you and for your team. But then put in a situation where you've collected the norms across certain players, they go and retire, or you've had a system with the head coach, he gets fired mid-season, yeah. and training changes that way, you see it all the time in football. You know, we've had it in league and football. What's that study Mladen like linked to? Like you can follow coaches around the league and see the see injury patterns. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like in. you might play a completely different system. You've collected all the state for six months and then that system changes. So it's like, is that information you've collected now valid based on you know the changing coach? Yeah. And it's the problem with science is it's always changing and evolving. Well, this is why I think uh, Wales, WRU have got it sorted because they their units are central. Yeah. For all the provincial clubs. Yeah. Sweet. And they get all the data back in, 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 in the central place. And I think that's the way that England rugby could potentially go, you know. If they're going to stump up the cash. Yeah, but, you know, then, then the, the information's central. And then you can get, uh, I can't remember who, who was saying about it, but you, you get a GPS passport. And that follows around your player. So, you know, you know, you know the player's load, you know their, their averages, you know their, their maxes. And yeah. that, that follows that player, the player around. And it's all about... Oh, from club to club. Yeah, from, so yeah, if you yeah. lose club, there's a, there's a GPS passport and that goes with him. And I think personally that's fundamentally in the player's welfare yeah. perspective. It has to be the way to go. But I think if you're essentially contracted, that works fine. I was having a discussion with one of, one of my colleagues in Aspire about the whole GPS. And we were like, well, does the club own the data? Or is that data, is the athlete's data, does he own that? Does yeah. he move on? Can he take that with him to say to the new coach like this is my training when he moves clubs say yeah. give me that data yeah it should be you know yeah. it's the ownership of the data you know does the club keep it is it's confidential and you know their intellectual property or mm. can the athlete say for my well-being you know I want to show my next club this is what my last season two season three seasons has looked like with my training load this is how best to manage me and I think if you haven't got it centrally contracted then yeah. you know you fall into that Tricky round, it'd be interesting to that, see. That, that's our, out of our reach of sports scientists, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, Control the controllables. Exactly. Too many egos, too much money. So, GPS. Use it if you've got it. If you've got the extra money, spend it on catapult. And if not, fundamentals. I think I remember hearing um, Patrick Ward speak, and he said, you know what, the, still the most reliable monitoring tool we have is uh, RPE times minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But how long have you spent trying to educate people in all different fields that you work with how useful RPE is? It's pretty useful. So GPS is going to take a hell of a lot more time to educate physios, psychologists potentially, yeah. you know, on, on the benefits and how you might and the get boys. this data. Yeah, and, and the that's, boys. That's, that's down to us. That's down to us to educate in our own environment and say this is how we can use this potentially very useful piece of technology. Yeah. And I think what we were saying the other day as well is, you know, have a question in mind that you want to answer and then look at the data from there. Don't look at the data and then try and... Generate answers, yeah, for questions that don't exist. You might say, what's the best way for us to train or how do the boys pull up or, you know, what is the best way to train this athlete in this week or turnaround? Yeah. You know, and then you can start to look for trends, but you're just going to... You won't see the... You'll get into the the GPS. Drowning data. Right, let's wrap it up. Boys, give me one book. Each from training and everyday life that people should read. Uh, one book from training. For the record there, I'm just going to show that Aiden pointed immediately at Ryan <laughs> to give himself time to think. Mate, I've got a bookshelf I need to through. <laughs> yeah, I've got, I've got a pretty big list of books. Uh, I'm currently rereading The Science of Running by 
Steve Steve Magnus, just because it's on top of my head. How weird is that shit where they like apply magnetic currents to the brain to try and influence performance? That is very cool. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why very good explanation of basics, but also some freaky shit in there too. I've tried to get him on the podcast and I emailed him the week that he blew the whistle on Salazar. Haven't been able to get hold of him since. He's a popular man now. (laughs) Yeah, that would do. Um, Outside. Again, I just have to go back to what I'm reading in the minute, which is Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. See, I've heard a lot of people talk about that book, and I I read like two pages. I was like, nah, not reading this. Yeah, it's fiction, right? Yeah, well, loose, loose, loose fact, but yeah, it's worth reading. What's the book about? Like, no, no, wait. What do you get out of the book? Um, I think it's how you interpret it. As of anything, it's how you interpret it. I like motorcycles, so it makes sense. And other than that, cru- <laughs> crucial conversations. Not going any deeper than that. <laughs> crucial conversations. Like for any any person working in our field, crucial conversations. Any per- person working with humans, crucial conversations. That's a lot of people come under that umbrella. Okers. For an SNC one, I'll throw it back to one of the first books I read. Um, Advances in Strength Condition. I was just Mike thinking Boyle. of Mike Boyle. We talked about him today. Mate, it's not the most in-depth S and C textbook. It's not science-heavy, but for someone starting out in the game, he's, like mate, he's giving you the he's giving you the recipe. Mate, it's, yeah, he's read a lot of books and just simplified it. And like we're saying, break it down to simple chunks. And I read it when I was doing my internship out there. And for anyone starting out in the game, like I think that laid a massive foundation for me, just because it it touches on everything. You know, train movements, not muscles. Do this. You know do what that. winds me up about that book? He's wearing the vibrams in the photos in the book. Mate, oh, he's got, the, the he's got a new book coming out. Jump, jumping right. on the bandwagon. Love the five fingers. Especially <laughs> when they're free. Yeah. Um, and then Life Book. I haven't read it in a while, but I'm going to throw out Creating Magic. Um, it's about one of the Disney VPs. Um, and just basically how he works his way through... Um, I think it was in the food industry. I think it was works in restaurants to start with and just works his way up to be a VP in Disney and just sort of talks you through some of the, the experiences that he had on the way up. Um, and yeah, I've got a ton of books that I need to read, but I think I'll... What, what, which books one. are you going to read? What, what's on the pile? Mate, there's tons. Um, I've got with Leaders Eat Last with me at the minute. Um, Simon Sinek's so Red Star with Wire. Enjoyed that. He fucking piles it on with the trail sometimes, Simon Sinek. Yeah. Mate, I think it's a simple message that just... I get it, right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, but again, it comes back to, as coaches, you know, being accountable to your program. You know, why is your athlete doing this particular exercise? How does it relate to the sport? And then why should they care? Yeah. You know, and like when you're taking your guys through the special strength stuff, you're telling them props, hookers, back row, whatever. This you is going to make this. you better at. Yeah, at, <laughs> what, at what you get paid to do. Yeah. Um, so I think from that perspective, it's massive. It could be a short book, but it repeats the same message. And I think that message is, you know, quite important, you know, why, 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 why? Um, and it's something, as a coach, I ask myself a lot. Um, so, yeah, I've got that, and then there's emotional intelligence, and I think it's working with emotional intelligence. I thought I ordered just the one book, and it's come as a, a double, so... How are you? <laughs> mate, I think that's a, a massive thing, yeah. So, uh, that'll be the next challenge, but, mate, it's a brick, but I think dealing with people is what we do on a daily basis and trying to affect behaviour so for me that was a, a massive book that um, 
I want to read and try and apply, especially when you're coaching with kids, mate. If you I'm can... still reading um, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow by Daniel Hahnemann. Yeah. So I think it's, it's a psychology book, but he won the Nobel Prize for Economics. It's about decision-making, process information and stuff. It's quite interesting to see like the biases that people have. But oh, I'm not sure if it's me. I need to I need to get through it and finish it. I say that high performance training for sport too. They give you, David Joyce. I yeah, someone mentioned that on the previous episode. It's awesome. I, I can't wait for 20, 30, 40 years time to look back on that book. And that book is a snapshot of I think where our industry is at with specialists in their own individual areas, with a real broad subject range. And I can't wait for 30, 40 years to look back on that as a snapshot of where we are right now as an industry. Yeah. Um, Hopefully it won't be like aviation because we had Concorde 40 years ago and now we have it. <laughs> Hopefully we'll get there. So um, where can people find you online? At AJ Oakley on Twitter. Um, I just retweet a lot of people's stuff. Come on, um, mate. You've got some red hot banter on there as well. Yeah. Mate, only this week. <laughs> but yeah, that's probably the best place. And uh, I just retweet smarter people's stuff that I like. Um, and think it's worth sharing. Mate, I... <laughs> I realised the other day, I think I follow like five different dogs on Instagram. <laughs> so, you're probably doing a better job than me on social media. Um, uh, we man. I think mine's at underscore Ryan Hicks, I think. The, the, someone got in there with the, like just Ryan Hicks before you. We man, but no. I, I, I'm going to surprise you here. When I went to enter in Keir Wen and Flat on Twitter, no competition. Yeah, that's price. <laughs> yeah, I just retweet your stuff really, dude. That's about it. I appreciate that mate I was, I was actually shocked I looked at um, my Twitter profile the other day I've done like 22,000 tweets oh fucking hell the amount of time that I've spent on Twitter but... uh, well, we've been here for a week we see how much time you spend on Twitter I know but it's <laughs> like it's good it's good for speaking to people getting information you putting it out there receiving it you are not on Twitter no 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 Insta these days you know it's growing faster than Twitter I haven't got that yet I need to do you that. need to get on Instagram. I'm, I'm okay. still working on actual human conversation verbally. Before yeah, everyone online. likes pictures. <laughs> Cheers for this, guys. Much appreciated.